You know, Cole's sermon last week was entitled, Don't Skip to the End. And uh, this was not intentional. It wasn't designed. I had actually written the title to this sermon before I heard last week's sermon or the title to it. So maybe in the sovereignty of God, he wanted us to stop skipping things. And so he's given us a double dose of don't skip. You know, after uh, Cole asked me a couple, a few weeks ago if I had anything kind of percolating and, and anything kind of working on that I would want to preach a sermon on, and, and I did because I'd recently read something that had really gotten my attention. I thought, you know, I want to study that more. I want to teach it. And I started scratching down some notes and so forth. Um, frankly, after Cole was preaching or during Cole's preaching last week, I started to wonder, am I going to need to change my sermon? He's getting awfully close. And so, but... Uh, but fortunately, it kind of took a little different tact with it, a little different direction, so I was able to continue with it. But he said, don't skip to the end, and what I want to say is, okay, but when you get to the end, don't skip the credits. Have you ever done that? You know, you go to a movie, you don't have a whole lot of time, and, and you just barely have time for the movie, so you go in, you watch the movie, and as soon as it's over, as soon as the credit starts to roll, you jump up and you run out, only to have a friend come up to you later and say, hey, did you see such and such movie? Yeah, I saw it. It was great. Wasn't that great what they did in the credits? And you're like, I wouldn't know because I skipped the credits. You know, sometimes you miss some pretty important things. You know, the fact of the matter is, Sometimes just in our human nature, just the way we are, I think men especially because we like to hurry up and conquer things, hurry up and, and get through things. That's why I don't understand people who write books that they want men to read that have long chapters. If you want a man to read a book, limit it to three pages because you need to three pages per chapter because we like to conquer chapters as we, as we go along. And, and so you get into the situation, we read through a book, and sometimes we get to the end, and, and they don't do us any favors by titling it Final Greetings or, or Final Instructions or something like that. Sometimes we can embrace a little bit of a sense almost of, of the credits in a movie. Our, our pace kind of quickens. We start reading a little faster. We kind of shift into skim mode, and, and we're seeing greet this person, greet that person, and we might miss something real important. That's exactly what happened to me uh, as I was a little devotional that I read, a little half-page devotional, I was reading it, and it was based on something that in the, come, came from the credits, and I realized, man, I, have, I, I don't want to miss things like this. There's some gems, and some of the most personal and some of the most relational things or in some of those final words, some of those final exhortation. And, and for Paul writing here, this really is a final exhortation. This is, this is the last of his writing. And so we, we draw from a few verses of Paul's epistle here. And as I did, it just made me really think and ponder. And, and I, it made me go back and, and really start just tilling the soil of that whole letter of 2 Timothy. And saying, what's, what's really here? And as I began to till the soil, what struck me was the amount of disappointment expressed, the amount of hurt, the amount of sadness, the amount of, 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 of personal disappointments, and maybe of the worst kind of disappointment, disappointment by people, disappointment by people that you cared about, disappointment by people that you trusted. Isn't that one of the things that hurts us the most? It's when we trust somebody, when we've invested in somebody, when we've, we've, we've brought somebody into our confidence and we're, we're living life with that person and then that person disappoints us in some way or, or leaves us or forsakes us, we, we can be hurt deeply by that. 
Sometimes that can feel malicious. It feels a lot like a personal attack. And often we can even feel some responsibility. What did I do wrong? Where did I mess up? What did I do to cause this when maybe nothing at all? Well, Paul knows that his days are numbered. Paul knows that he's at the end. He, t- he tells us that back in verses 6 through 8. It says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So he's facing it and reflects on a life. And in it, he recounts some disappointments, some letdowns, some hurts, some sadness, even some anger over things that he has experienced. As a matter of fact, you know, every single chapter of 2 Timothy has something in it that, that voices a disappointment, that voices a hurt, that voices a sadness, that voices something that Paul experienced. He starts way back in, in chapter 1, verse 15, where he talks about being forsaken by his associates in Asia. He said, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. And some he trusted in, in, in chapter 2, he says, they, they're now spreading false doctrine. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. There were others who were openly opposing and confusing others, wrapping them into to meaningless controversies, even indulging in sinful passions. In, in chapter 3, he says, for, in verse 6, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. I'm not touching that one. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. He endured persecutions. Verse 11 of chapter 3, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And our text that we're really focusing on in chapter 4, in verse 10, deserted by Demas, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. There's the opposition from Alexander. This is not the Alexander who had the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. This is the Alexander that caused the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. In a desperate hour, he was abandoned. Verse 16, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. It's a man who's been hurt. It's a man who's experienced some pain. It's a man who's experienced some some sorrow and some grief at the hands of, of some who he should not have had to experience that from. And sometimes that's our experience as well. You know, he's not a guy who had had it his way here. He's not a guy, you know, our modern standard. It says that when we get to the end, everything is, is supposed to just be this this great crescendo of blessing. He's coming to the end in his faithful, faithful life without the trappings of success by our modern day standard. Not a guy whose, whose mentees are all standing around. They're keeping a vigil 
waiting to hear his, his final words, waiting to just glean anything they can. They're, they're gone. Some have forsaken him. But even the faithful ones have been in need of deploying them to other places. And that's not bad, but it's still hard and it's still painful. I mean, it's not unlike what I know some of you in this room have experienced where you have deployed a child to the mission field. You've been at an airport and you've said goodbye to a child that you knew you might not see for a long time or, or a, a beloved staff member here who, who God has called elsewhere. And we, we've seen them go. It's not bad, but it's still hard. It still hurts. It still has pain involved in it. His words to Timothy, Paul's echoing here, court of, of loneliness. There's some, some cues to that in the text. He says, do your best to come to me soon. Bring Mark, Luke, and he emphasizes Luke alone is here with me. I think there's some loneliness. We can pick that up through the tone of some of the phrases that he uses. He's longing for that fellowship, especially of this son in the faith. This one who was the protege, this one who he had invested so much in, and as Paul comes to his end, now his death is probably not imminent at this point. You can kind of tell by what he's asking Timothy to bring. That it's probably not like he's thinking, I'm, I'm going to die tomorrow or something like that. Um, it wasn't like he was going to FedEx this letter off and Timothy was going to jump on the next plane and be there in a couple of days. It was going to be months probably before Timothy got there. But he knows he's coming to an end. I think he made that clear. God had revealed that to him. We saw that in verses 6 through 8. You know, honestly, if I'm where Paul is, I don't know how I'd be doing at this point. I don't know how I'd be handling this. I don't know how I'd be taking it. I don't know if I'd be taking it in stride or if bitterness would be setting in. Because the circumstances he's experiencing, let's face it, these are not the circumstances. Most of us at all, but much less most of us in ministry, want to be experiencing at the end, not just the prison aspect of it, but the relational aspect of it, the aloneness of it, the hurts, the desertion, the things that he's experienced as he's nearing the end of his life now. We all want to be, have, you know, be, be, be pontificating to someone on the, the issues of the age and having someone who's out, we know they're out fighting for us. And, and in some ways, Paul's saying, that's not happening for me people that we've touched, people that we've invested in. We, wanting them, we want them coming toward us in that time, certainly not as he experienced, some actually opposing him and deserting him. You know, I, I fear I know myself. I'm really afraid I might be throwing a pity party about now, that I might not be handling this with the maturity and the grace. I hope I would. Don't you? We hope we would. We don't really know until we get there. But there is something we can do about it before we get there, and we'll talk about that. You see, we would not necessarily expect this from a lifetime of faithful service. We might expect something more, something more affirming, more fulfilling, something a little bit more encouraging. You know, there are a lot of brands of disappointment. There's a lot of things that we can experience at the end of life or as our ministry comes to a close that we might not have expected, that we might have a sense of, God, why, why are you doing this to me? 
God, why have you brought this into my life? Maybe it's physical illness. Maybe it's a financial setback or the, the illness of a child or the waywardness of a child or a failed marriage or the failed marriage of a child or, or, or just a lost job, something that we really have found a lot of our sense of purpose in, especially if that comes late in life. It's, it's, there's a desperation in that. Maybe a ministry that we've lost. Maybe something that we were all about that and, and through no doings of our own we've been sidelined from that maybe we've just been cut out of it maybe we've been deemed irrelevant to it and and unwanted in it anymore and we feel marginalized and that can hurt and that brings pain and there's suffering in that there's a lot of brands of suffering that we can experience sometimes at the hands of others I hope my response will be a response of faithfulness, and I know you hope that too. What was Paul's response? What we're going to see is that in every one of these situations, Paul himself responds as one in using the word that Cole's been teaching us as we go through Romans. He's responding as one who has been cruciformed. How do you get to this point? How do you reach this point in life and find yourself not bitter, find yourself not railing against the injustices and the, and the, and the, the, um, the inequities that you're facing and, and the hurt that those may have, have given to you? We don't see it happening because someone's telling Paul to do that. We don't see it happening because someone else is trying to, to lay some counsel on Paul about it. You remember what Cole read to us last week. It was funny, but not funny. The list of platitudes that he read, those of you that here last week, of, it comes from a, a, a book on things not to say to someone with cancer. You know, all the things that we should not say to that person. When a sentence starts with, well, at least. When a sentence starts with, well, why don't you just try? Or you ought to. Or anything else that we think of that we just try to make light or marginalize or minimize that suffering that never works because see in order to see things this is what we've got to understand in order to see things from a cruciform perspective does not require that we see the pain as anything less than pain we don't have to convince ourselves oh it didn't really hurt when we fall down the steps, we don't have to convince ourselves that didn't hurt. We don't have to jump up like, it, like, I didn't just fall down the steps. I don't have blood coming out of my body. You know, some of us don't, we don't ever want to admit that we're human. You call me at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit up on the side of the bed and go, <coughs> hey. No, I was out mowing the grass. You know, I mean, it's just like, no, I wasn't asleep. You know, it's, it's like, why do we want people to know we're human sometimes? That we hurt, that we suffer that we have those experiences in life that bring us pain and be in that pain. But being in that pain does not require us to turn against God and to rail against God. Those are not things that have to go together. And experiencing pain and blessing God and glorifying God can walk together hand in hand. And they must. And that's the cruciform life that Paul's demonstrating to us. Paul's not someone here that's minimizing the pain that he's experienced. He says it like it is. He expresses what it is he's experienced. It's not minimizing to say, oh, somehow that wasn't so hard. But this is the man himself. See, that's the difference here. 
This is not Paul experiencing and somebody else trying to tell him how he should feel about it if he was really right with God. This is Paul himself as a cruciformed man, a man who has lived in intimacy with God. And when those times of suffering and pain come, experiencing those in the light of that cruciformity, acknowledging pain and hurt, not pretending it doesn't matter, not pretending he's not affected by it, but seeing them in the light of who God is, in light of a deep and surrendered walk in intimacy with the Savior, experiencing these things as one transformed by a renewed mind, as one who can express the hurt and the pain and the disappointment honestly, and even the righteous anger honestly, but see it from the perspective of who God is, all coming from the same man. When he said, all who are in Asia turned away from me, not as a platitude, not as a denial of the truth, he can also say, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. God, I was suffering. God, I was deserted. I was hurt by that, but God, you provided someone who refreshed me, who encouraged me, not denying the pain or, or turning away and, and saying that, that didn't really work. but a man of faith expressing his known faithfulness of God and remembering that Hymenaeus and Philetus, as well as others, had swerved from the truth. But he also knew that God's firm foundation stands. A man who, who warns Timothy of the days ahead, uh, days ahead. I mean, when you read that whole section of, of the people that you know, avoid, be careful of these people. And he warns Timothy about those who creep into households or burdened with sins, lead others astray, oppose the truth, corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. But he looks at Timothy. He writes to Timothy, he says, but you, Timothy, you, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Man is evil. God is good. Man is unjust. Man is fallen. And God is just and God is holy. When he acknowledged that though he endured persecutions and, and sufferings at Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra, genuine suffering at the hands of men, he also says that from them all the Lord rescue me. You know, the pain is great, the hurt was real. And rescue doesn't always mean taking it away, getting rid of it. I have a little plaque that I keep in my office. And I set it on the table where people who come for counseling, I don't know if they ever notice it or not, but, but it's there. So if you ever come for counseling, notice it, okay? It's sitting there. It's aimed right at you. And here's what it says. It says, sometimes God calms the storm. And sometimes he lets the storm rage and calms his child. Sometimes God's rescue is not in taking away the storm. Sometimes God's rescue is giving us peace of heart. You know, my, uh, my hometown down in Florida didn't expect that. Got flattened. It's not even there anymore for the most part this past week. People that I grew up with, people that I went to school with, um, everything's gone. It'll never, ever be the same again. I know people experience that all the time. But there's pain in it. There's hurt. 
But when we face those things, whether they're of man's making or whether they are of God's doing, we look at that and we realize that God is the God of rescue. And rescue doesn't always mean even saving our life, much less our, our, our way of life. But Paul understood these are not experience persecutions and sufferings. God has rescued me. Demas, who left him, Demas, who deserted him, in love with this present world. Now, it doesn't, most likely, Demas didn't, des, didn't forsake the faith. That, in some ways, would almost have been easier to dealt with, for him to deal with. But, but Demas, most likely, according to most of the commentators, it was just too hard. The road was just too hard, and the, and the easy way of life was just easier. He was probably a ministry partner in some way. We, we see that in other places. And he just came to the point that he just couldn't handle it anymore. It was just too hard. And, and the way of the world, the, the life of leisure, the life of, of, of an easy life outside of the hardships that a life partnering with Paul demanded, he left. Did you know what also Paul realized? He also said, Mark, Mark who had deserted him previously, isn't that, isn't that kind of neat? He talks about Demas who deserted him. He brings up Mark who deserted him, who God had done a work in. He says, bring him to me for he's useful for the ministry. That's what God does. God redeems. God doesn't have to find the silver lining on the cloud. You know, sometimes when people come to talk and, and they have a situation that's just awful. And they want to find the silver lining. You know, sometimes there's not a silver lining. And that's what I'm so grateful that God is a God of creation. God doesn't have to look into a devastated marriage and find something to build on any more than he had to find something to build on when he created the universe. You ever heard E.V. Hill's description of God creating the universe? It's great. Back when there wasn't nothing, God stood on it. And he reached out into nowhere and he grabbed a handful of something and he threw it out into somewhere and told it to be something and it was, told it to stay there and it did. <laughs> That's how E.V. Hill describes creation. You know, God does that in situations in our life as well. He does that in situations in our life as well. He's not, he doesn't have to have something to grab onto. God creates. He creates something out of the suffering. He creates something out of the pain. Or when Alexander the coppersmith did him great harm, he knew that the Lord would repay him according to his deeds. And by the way, this is not an imprecation. This is not a, you know, get him God kind of thing. If you really understand that text, what he's really saying, he's just affirming the character and the nature of God, that God sets things right. That ultimately God is a God of justice. Ultimately God is a God of holiness. And ultimately God will set it right in his time, in his way, in his place. Not always how we would see that. But God is a just God and a holy God. And Paul knew and understood that. And when all abandoned him at his first defense, he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me in the midst of that. With every disappointment, with every heartache, with every grief, with every suffering and every affliction, every disappointing, hurtful, evil act of man and every manifestation of the very fallenness of this world, Paul attests to the goodness of God. And that matters. And that all came from the same man. See, we can't put that on anybody. 
We can't drop that on them. We can't give that to somebody who's suffering like a pill that they just take and now they feel better. What makes this work is not that someone was able to eloquently ascribe this to Paul. What makes this work, why this, why this can happen, is cruciformity. It's because through a life in an intimacy with God, in pursuing an intimacy with God, in living a life in, in heart connection with God, in living a life of surrender, as that is going on, Paul is learning these truths and the Spirit of God growing and living within him and filling him. And what we receive over a lifetime of intimacy with God is something no one can ever give us, no one can ever tell us in the midst of our suffering. It's something that it works because this wasn't something being given, a truth trying to make its way into Paul. It's truth coming out of Paul as the cruciformity that he had experienced through his life being conformed to the cross and by the, being conformed by the cross as that conformity is taking place. He knows this, he experienced this, and the man experiencing the suffering is the man who experiences the blessing of God. The reality of wickedness, the reality of God's faithfulness, those things walk side by side. Those things are both real and present in our world. Why we struggle with this is because somewhere, some way, we got told, or we began to believe, whether told or not, we began to believe that if I am to see this in light of the goodness of God, I have to try to reinterpret or, or figure out some way to convince myself that this really wasn't so bad. And the fact is, we don't. Bad is bad. God is good. Hurt is hurt. Pain is pain. We've got to live in honesty about that. We've got to quit saying fine when somebody asks us how we're doing and we're not fine. We've got to learn to be honest. We've got to come to that point of transparency and vulnerability and emotional honesty so that we can talk about that pain, so that we can talk about that hurt. And we can let people know that this happened and this hurt me. I'm not fine with this. I'm not okay with this. In, my, in the sense of my emotions. But I am whole with this because of who God is. I'm not devastated by this because of who God is. I want to read a little thing as I close that uh, Chris, our AV guy, gave me this week. It was really, really helpful. It really kind of solidified some things. You know, this... That's what we're talking about. It's something that comes out of a, of a life journey. It's not something we just put on when the day comes. That's, that's the problem. And sometimes we, 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 we just ignore God and we're negligent with God. And, and then all of a sudden crisis comes and we got nothing. We don't have the ability. But, but God wants to bring us to that point. And here's what it says. It was written by a guy named Andrew Seidel or Seidel. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce his last name. There's an article he wrote uh, for a book called Foundations of Spiritual Formation. He said, God will involve each of us 
in something that is more of a pilgrimage than a process. Process is much too mechanical. Pilgrimage is much more personal. Pilgrimages are powerful experiences. A pilgrimage is a transformative journey to a sacred center full of hardship, darkness, and peril. People make pilgrimages in order to be transformed by the experience. Sometimes they're religious pilgrimages, but most of the time they are personal pilgrimages. Either way, there must be an element of difficulty and hardship, even danger. Something that challenges us to the depths of our souls. Without the hardships, there would be no extending of ourselves past the boundaries of our comfort zone. No true transformation. God will see to it that you are stretched far enough that the effect of your pilgrimage will be to get you to examine your heart, your inner life. This is why your willingness to enter deeply into your own life story is so critical. We are so immersed in the pressured flow of life that we move from one crisis to the next activity to the following event, seldom if ever pausing to reflect on what those experiences are teaching us. Unless we stop and reflect on the formative experiences and relationships of our life, we will miss the transformative purposes that God intended. But there is indeed no limit to the pains God is willing to take in our training. And all our experiences, his goal will be to teach us to depend upon Christ for everything. Father God, we are grateful that in a world that has fallen, among people that are fallen, among the pain and the experiences that we have that sometimes rip our souls apart. That as we walk with you, as we know you, as we allow you into our life in penetrating, transforming ways, we see those things not in a way that we have to minimize them or in a way that we have to explain them away or, or convince ourselves we're not hurt, but in a way that allows us to experience the hurt and the pain, but to experience it in the informed knowledge that we have a righteous and holy God. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.